You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is the future of work after COVID-19. I am joined by two outstanding colleagues. I am joined by Anu Madhigavkar. She is a partner at McKinsey Global Institute based out of Mumbai. She also happens to be the co-author of the new report uh, called The Future of Work After COVID-19. Also joined by Maya Hori. She is a partner in Tokyo, and she leads the public sector practice there. And she is also a hub leader for our organization practice. Welcome, Anu. Welcome, Maya. I would like to warm up before we get into the topic at hand. I would love to hear from you. 2020 was a tough year for all of us. As you look forward into 2021, what is it you most look forward to? Maya. Sure. Thanks for having me, Oliver. So the thing that I love to do this year is to actually go back to the U.S. I, you know, I lived there for 12 years and came back to Japan three years ago. And then now I have not had the chance to travel back for about a year plus. So love to go back and see my friends and family there. Oliver, I think 2020 has been a tough year, but in a strange kind of way, it's also enabled us through technology like Zoom to actually be a lot, lot more connected with people around the world and have many, many more conversations. So while I've enjoyed that, I'm looking forward to a little more balance on the other side, which is it would be nice to sit in the same room and talk to people that you know or don't know about things that are interesting. <laughs> exactly. Looking forward to that human connection. So thank you for being on, uh, ladies. I suggest we dig straight in. Now, the topic at hand is how is work going to change after COVID-19, or at least as we now look forward, it might not even be after, but with COVID-19. Let me start with you, um, Anu. How is COVID-19 going to change the future of work in the longer term? The future of work has been constantly evolving, but in the past, this was mainly due to technological forces or economic forces. But I think with the COVID-19 pandemic, this has been like no previous episode that, that we've seen. And what's different about it is that it's brought very sharply into focus the notion of physical proximity and made that actually a factor that determines how work will be reshaped and the new kinds of roles that will grow in demand or decline in demand. So the physical dimensions of work and where we work. And given this, we think that there are three trends that have been accelerated and, and given further fuel by COVID-19, remote work, digital channels and automation. And as an impact of these, we're actually going to see a lot more occupational transitions required in the future, about 100 million more across the countries we've looked at. So it's pretty significant. And these challenges of reskilling people to meet these new and growing occupations are actually be, going to be more challenging than they were in the past. So it's a tougher future, but if we manage to help workers make it through this it could be a brighter future for businesses as well as workers. Thank you. Let's double click on, on some of this. You said three trends, if I heard you. The first, you said remote work, you said digital channels, and you said automation. Let's start with the first one, the first trend, which is remote work, virtual meetings. So say a little bit more about that. Anu, why don't we go first to you? 
So remote work spiked during the pandemic, uh, pretty much across the board. But in doing so, uh, while it was out of sheer necessity, what it's also revealed to workers as well as businesses is that there are longer term benefits that include flexibility and greater ease of work in some ways. So our research actually suggests that if you actually look at work uh, from a very granular perspective of what tasks and activities are, you know, people engage in, we find that as much as 20 to 25% of the workforce could actually work remotely in the long term as well. And this is not the entire workforce, clearly. But nevertheless, it's four to five times the level of remote work that we saw prior to the pandemic. So while remote work levels will fall, they will still be four to five times or they could be four to five times what they used to be in the past. And this has important implications for the workforce, for the way companies organize their workspaces, as well as for the future of uh, cities, uh, cities, suburbs and so on. Maybe I can jump in here and then share a bit about the case of Japan, right? So I think the government was trying to promote the remote work for quite some time, for decades. And frankly, I feel like this pandemic has really moved the needle over the course of a few months that, you know, we weren't able to achieve in the previous decade. And it's actually uh, interesting because I, you know, of course, we were supposed to have the Olympics in Japan, and that was going to be the main reason why we needed to move more towards the remote work. But I see actually that there are two different kinds of companies. So there's a group of companies in Japan who have really embraced this as an opportunity to move more towards remote working, more flexible working, and, you know, embrace the change. Um, and actually, even when even further to say, you know, we want to optimize our real estate footprints or, you know, we want to introduce more of the job dis- uh, job based or job description based workforce as opposed to kind of, you know, employees just belonging to the organization. And that's been a significant progress uh, that I see. But at the same time, because the pandemic hasn't been as significant or severe in Japan compared to maybe some other countries, I see some companies are reverting back to the old way. So, you know, in some situations, people are back in the office, they are not taking advantage of potential changes that they could have introduced this way. And then I think this division could be an interesting, you know, potential future differences in the impact of the COVID. And can we just well, let's stay on this remote work for a second? What you're describing, both of you, but also my what you just said, how are employees reacting to this? How do you think they will react to this? It's you know, some of this sounds a little bit scary to be honest, the way you're describing it. So how do you find people reacting to it? Well, I think people are learning through experience. And one of the things that uh, we are at least receiving as feedback from both employees and employers is that this is not something you can paint with a broad brush. It's not that you can go, you know, permanently 100% remote. There are very specific types of work that lend themselves to great efficiency if we work remotely. But equally, there are other types of work which are actually much more effectively done face-to-face. For example, onboarding new employees into an organization or providing a certain intensive level of coaching and feedback or negotiations and closing a sale uh, in the case of Salesforce when the customer or the client is unfamiliar to you. These kinds of things do benefit from face-to-face interaction. So for both employees as well as employers, I think you have to really take it with a scalpel. It's not that you can 
tick off, you know, large parts of your workforce and say, everybody work remote. That worked well during the pandemic. Longer term, you have to be much more granular and thoughtful and go for a hybrid model. Maybe just the two additional points, right? So I've heard a lot about and working moms really benefiting the fact that they don't need to commute and they may be able to spend more time with kids, myself included. I can see my boy coming from coming home from school and then just have a three-minute chat, which has been a big difference. At the same time, I've also heard from many managers who are very worried that they don't know how to manage their employees remotely. Because sometimes in Japan, especially, you have all these workers sitting in front of you, and then that's the sign of working. And then now when you are actually far away, you don't really know what each person is doing. And then especially your objectives are not clear or the outputs are not clear, then as managers, it's very difficult to say whether the person is actually doing the work. So what I hear you saying on this first trend, which is remote work, and frankly, it's not so much remote work as the opportunity to have hybrid models. I hear there is real opportunity for companies, for individuals, but I also hear that, you know, listen, there's going to be a little bit of an experimentation and figure this out as we go along because, you know, some parts of this are uncomfortable as all change is, but some parts of this will be uncomfortable. Let's move to the second trend I heard you, you mentioning, Anu, which was, I think you said, increase in the use of digital channels. Why don't you kick us off on that topic? So digital channels have proliferated and really surged worldwide during the pandemic. We looked at a set of countries and certainly Asian economies are right up there where we saw that e-commerce growth in the year in the course of the pandemic was two to five times more than what you would expect if you'd looked at the average growth over the past few years prior to the pandemic. We have, you know, hordes of new users, first time adopters, and then businesses figuring out how to manage the whole delivery economy as part of uh, e-commerce. And it's not just shopping, it's also a lot of online food delivery, online grocery delivery, telemedicine, and of course, remote learning, right? So across the board, digital channels and interaction. Now, what that means is when that happens, the kind, we're coming back to the future of work implication of that, customers have discovered the convenience. Now, they may actually go back to restaurants and they may go back to buying their own groceries because they like to touch and feel the apples they buy before they buy them. But nevertheless, you know, the level of e-commerce is going to be higher in the future. And we will see a shift of jobs, of demand for labor. We'll see that shifting from in-person customer interaction to more transportation, warehousing, and delivery-based jobs in the economy. So as any service-oriented business thinks about it, you know, this is a shift in terms of its workforce that it can anticipate. Maya, do you see this happening? Yeah, I fully agree. And then in Japan, the delivery workers are already in huge shortage to begin with. But I think this has accelerated that severity even more. And then at the same time, I also see that you know, things like cashless economy, right, or the availability of data and businesses or new startups that's taking advantage of those data flows. I think those are also new emerging areas that we see from this trend. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. 
Good. Third trend was automation, automation and AI. So again, Anu, what does that mean? So we're seeing uh, through the pandemic that businesses were almost, you know, forced to embrace automation in select areas. And this is because many sort of manufacturing plants had to think about how do I keep the plant open but manage with less workforce density, right? So the meatpacking industry, for example, a long time, perhaps a slow adopter of automation just because of the nature of work, suddenly saw a surge in that because workplace density was an issue. In other cases, there were spikes in demand for various kinds of things during COVID. And the only way companies could respond was through automation. But that said, we think that this is still an early stage. We've looked at the history of recessions over the past several decades. And what we find is that in the few years following the recession, you actually see automation levels and automation adoption rise very rapidly because that's the time when businesses are very keen to capture efficiencies, stabilize their cost base, and in many ways respond to the new economic realities post the recession. So we expect something similar in the case of you know this particular phase as well to see automation levels rise. And we are seeing a sort of signal of that in, in things like, you know, robotic shipments around the world are starting to rise. We are seeing the stock prices of companies that actually produce, uh, you know, automation-related products actually start rising. So there's an anticipation that this will be a greater shift or a trend going forward than it even is now. So if we now pull these three trends together, remote work, digital channels, automation, you pull them together, what is the impact of all of these post-COVID trends? Maya, do you want to go first on that one? Sure. I mean, I think there's, uh, to me, this all of this together is, again, driving the changes that you know, had been difficult to do before, right? And then especially in the case of Japan, I think it shows up as kind of in the form of digital transformation, which, you know, we were already to quite behind it to begin with. And then I think what's important is that the finally the kind of there's a sense of urgency that things need to change. I think, you know, people had understood the benefit and the importance of, you know, using the technology, adapting and, you know, becoming more efficient, all of that. But I feel like there was never as much of an imperative that that needed to happen right now, right away. But seeing the COVID situation, right? For example, you know, we have this culture of hanko, the stamps that we use for approvals in every companies. But then now people are showing up to the office just so that they can have a physical stamp on the contracts or decisions, etc., and the government said, this is totally ridiculous. We're going to get rid of that altogether. And then that kind of leadership had now percolated throughout the organization. So it's not just about the government bureaucracies, but also companies are starting to you know, abandon those old habits and then adapting to more you know, digital signatures and the e-procurement, et cetera. And so I feel like, you know, now is a moment where those kinds of big changes that have been, you know, maybe people resisted in the past or that had been difficult in the past, finally are starting to, to move. Anu, if you pull it together and look at the trends, what impact do they have? You know, it feels like there will be a number of people here that will be, their occupations are going to be changing, no? Absolutely, Oliver. We've actually quantified this in the MGI research, right? So we looked at eight countries and across these eight, there are more than 100 million workers that will need to 
transition and move to new occupations, not the occupations that they were in. And these numbers are particularly stark for Asia. So China, of course, with over 50 million, India with about 18 to 20 million, uh, and Japan with half a million or so. So these are occupational transitions. What it also means is that new skills will have to be acquired by these individuals. And the sort of gap between occupations that are growing in demand and occupations that are declining, that gap is getting wider. So individuals will need to be helped to acquire skills which are perhaps one or two rungs higher on the skills ladder than you know you would you might have thought in the past. So it is more challenging. But to pick up on Maya's point, I think while companies are you know, they, they've realized they have an opportunity to reinvent work and reimagine it. They've also realized that you can be extraordinarily agile uh, when you need to. And that's something the pandemic has taught us. So we would hope that the same level of agility and creativeness, which we showed, you know, during the pandemic is also deployed uh, when you think about how do you equip the workforce for the future. So one simple example is, we needn't think about redeploying or reskilling people for their whole jobs, but we should really think about slivers of skills which are task specific. And if you just provide this skill, which might be something you can do in the space of a couple of weeks, you know, the worker actually becomes fit for purpose in another kind of work. So adopting that very agile, very sharp type of focus to the reskilling challenge. Uh, will help not just businesses respond quickly, but will also help the workforce and the economy overall to move towards the higher productivity future that's possible. Yeah. And can I ask you, you know, you said hundred more than 100 million workers need to find a different occupation or you know, some occupational transition. But by the way, that is something that's very easy to say, but sounds like something that is quite worrying and difficult for the individuals involved. So I'm very happy you're saying that, you know, what we're talking about here is slivers or chunks so hopefully you can reskill over time. But the question I wanted to ask is the trends you laid out, at least two of them were present before COVID. Automation, we've been talking about for a while, uh, digital channels as well. What difference has COVID made to this number of people that will see some significant change in their occupations? So there is a quantitative increase about, on aggregate, about 12% higher than we might have thought of. But in some of the advanced economies where these trends are affecting and disrupting workforces even more, this could be as high as 20% more. So it's both a greater set of transitions in terms of the number of transitions, but it's also a greater challenge because of this widening gulf in terms of the kinds of skills. So if a retail cashier or you know somebody in food service is, is displaced, you'd have to think quite carefully about what, how to reskill such a person for a higher skill occupation, which is a couple of wage levels higher than currently. So how can we train that person to be, let's say, uh, you know, a, a health specialist of some kind or a health technician of some kind? That's a growing occupation. But the gulf between the skills is a little bit more than it was in the past. So we're going to have to be quite sharp about it. Yeah. I understand. Listen, we have a few minutes left. I want to zoom in the focus on how companies and policymakers can support some of these changes. So Maya, why don't you take first stab at that? How can companies and policymakers support these changes? So I think, you know, as Anna mentioned, the, the reskilling and uh, building the capabilities to 
fit for the new types of jobs, I think is most critical. And then I think many companies are trying to have that kind of reskilling programs, but I don't think it's, it's enough. Right. So especially I worry about the kind of the older ages. I mean, especially when we think about the Asian economy in Japan and in many of the Asian countries, it's not the twenties and the new graduates who would need to you know, adapt to new technical skills. I think that's important, but that's going to happen. But what's going to be more challenging is people who are in the fifties and the sixties who still have some more productive years to go, but you know, their skills are no longer relevant in many of the jobs that they can fit in. And then I think how to think about reskilling of that population, I think it's very important. And when we think about the policymakers, I would also add that um, thinking about the SMEs, I think is going to be critical because I think larger corporations will be able to find its own resources to have different types of training programs, etc. But then when it comes to SMEs, they don't necessarily have the resources, capabilities, or even understanding of you know how these these uh, new skills need to be developed or adoption need to happen. And then so I think that's where the policymakers could also play a role in you know figuring out the matches with the technology players or trying to create some kind of platforms and services that could be helpful for these segments. I would also say that it's time for companies to double down on diversity and inclusion measures, particularly with reference to women, because women are, like Maya talked about, right? There are groups which are more affected and women are one of those groups. But also we know that the classic time poverty issue exists. So women find it harder actually to invest the time and resources needed to reskill themselves. So if we don't want to regress and go backwards on uh you know the the move the journey towards greater parity in the workforce we've got to pay more attention at this point in time to diversity and inclusion that's right i remember one of our previous podcasts on i think you said that women during the pandemic have been 1.8 times as likely to lose their jobs so i think you're spot on in terms of keeping an eye on this diversity and inclusion listen we're going to round out i'm going to ask each of you one Last question, which is if you put yourselves in the shoes of the many executives that are listening to this podcast, what is the the one piece of advice you have for them with regards to the future of work post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID? Maya? I'd say take this as an opportunity to make big, bold changes. I think now is the time more than ever to break through all of these constraints and uh, resistance. Embrace technology, put technology first and think about what competitive advantage technology gives you and reimagine your business model and workforce on that basis. Perfect. Anu, Maya, a huge thank you to both of you. You guys are absolutely great. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for spending the time. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining and have a great day. Take care. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.